you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Acts chapter 25. Acts 25. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And my plan at this point is, including this sermon, we'll have three more sermons within this series. So we will be um, have studied all the verses of the book of Acts, maybe not totally in-depth as much as we could go. Um, but before our joint services begin on the 30th, um, and then I think we will probably have a summary sermon from the book of Acts once we come back together in July. Uh, it's a lot of material that we've covered over a long period of time, and I think it's always good just to try to remember where we've been and synthesize that a little bit. But for uh, this afternoon, we'll be in Acts 25, uh, verses 13 through the end of that chapter, and then also all of chapter 26. So we've got a good bit to cover this afternoon, but I think you'll see why we want to cover that all at the same time. Uh, most of you know the, the saying, uh, I'll let you complete it, when, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, there you go, or make a lemonade stand as my kids want to do all the time in the summer, I guess. You know. uh, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, which has to do with making the best of a, of a bad situation. Uh, when something difficult comes into your life, that it's something we can turn for good. And while we should never deny the reality of real and true suffering and pain in our lives, we don't want to just kind of whitewash over difficulty. It's also wise and right, especially for those of us that trust that God is sovereign and he is good and he is in control of all things. It's right for us to strive to seek for good in every situation that comes across our lives as we trust God, that he can turn things for good. Uh, Corey Ten Boom, uh, I'm sorry, Joshua's not here. Josh, one of his heroes in the faith, but I'll tell him the quote at potluck, I guess. But Corey Ten Boom, who was imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp, uh, wrote this, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. I'll read that again. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Paul's trip to Jerusalem at the end of the book of Acts did not go as planned. Uh, it tasted a lot like lemons, and it looked a lot like a train tunnel, I think. When we last left him, we saw that for two years, Paul had sat under house arrest in Caesarea. He had arrived in Jerusalem to deliver this collection of relief funds, remember, to the church that was facing famine, after which he was hoping to sail to Rome and possibly on to Spain to spread the, the gospel there and plant churches there. But about a week after his arrival, he is beaten almost to death, um, and he is, is arrested on false charges. And then after two mock trials of the Jews, Paul is, is sent to Caesarea to be tried before Felix, who finds no reason to kill him and no reason to keep him in prison, and yet he still puts him under house arrest for two years to appease the Jews and in the hopes, you remember, of possibly getting a bribe for himself. Uh, but the bribe never came, and when Felix was eventually called out of his post in Caesarea, he left Paul in prison to try to continue to make the Jews happy. Now, this isn't always the case. But I've noticed that I, that politicians 
like to take credit for anything good that happens during their time in office, whether they caused it or not. Um, and I've also noticed that at the end of their term, they like to hand off all of their problems, whether it be some sort of a divisive issue or a budget crisis or a controversial project to the people who are coming after them. And this is what happens to Festus. Festus becomes the governor of Caesarea and he inherits a situation and the situation's name is Paul. Um, there was no easy answer to Paul. To adapt a song from the sound of music, I just imagine Festus walking around his palace in his early weeks in the office saying, singing, how do you solve a problem like the Apostle Paul? <laughs> Yet, in some ways, he inherited, the, he had inherited the problem of Paul, but he also made the problem worse by his own inaction and by his own politicking. Last week, we saw that in a brief trial where the same old charges were brought against Paul, Festus tried to solve the problem of Paul by giving the Jews what they wanted, namely letting them hold the trial in Jerusalem. But Paul would have none of that. Uh, standing in the court of Rome with a clear conscience, he appealed to Caesar. I think he did that in part because he saw what God was doing, that this is how God was going to get him to Rome. But I also think he, he actually believed what he wrote in Romans 13. In Romans 13, 3 through 5, he writes about submitting to the governing authorities, and he says this, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to God's wrath, not, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So Paul knew he had done nothing wrong. Remember, his conscience is, is clear, and so he has nothing to fear. And so he's going to ride this wave, and he's going to ride it all the way to Rome, we find. Festus also knew that Paul had done nothing wrong. Paul knew he hadn't done anything wrong, and Festus knew he hadn't done anything wrong. And knowing that, he found himself in this unique predicament, which is he's accepted Paul's appeal to Caesar, and now he has to send a prisoner to Rome and to Caesar that he knows is innocent, but whom he lacked the courage to set free. So here in the second part of Acts 25, Festus is explaining this predicament to some fellow dignitaries who are visiting, and then he ends up enlisting their help in trying to solve this problem of, of Paul. So listen to this next scene in the story. Um, from Acts chapter 25, and I'm just going to read verses 13 through 27 for now. So this is after Paul has appealed to Caesar. Verse 13, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice, or it's probably pronounced Bernike, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face, and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. 
When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernike came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Festus is the new governor in town. And we find in verse 13 that some fellow leaders from the Roman Empire had come probably to congratulate him or to welcome him, namely Agrippa and Bernike. Like Felix and Drusilla of chapter 24, Agrippa and Bernike had quite the reputation in the ancient world. Um, they were in fact brother and sister, though there were rumors circling that they were involved in an incestuous relationship. Bernike at this point had been married three different times, all in some different sorted situation. Uh, it kind of makes sense when you start looking at the family tree. These are the children of the Herod from Acts chapter 12, who was struck down by the Lord when he didn't give God glory. Um, and, and that happened when Agrippa was only 17 years old. He didn't immediately rise to power, but was later given uh, a post, uh, a, a kingship, if you will, by by Caesar. And so these are the children of Herod from Acts 12. They're the continuation of the Herodian dynasty, all the way back to the Herod who killed all the children when Jesus was born, to the Herod that um, that John the Baptist used to talk to. And so this is a, a long line of very interesting characters, to put it lightly. They seem to have gotten along well with Festus because they extend their stay with him. And at some point, Festus shares with them the predicament of Paul. Just like Lysias' letter to Felix at the end of chapter 23, Festus' Festus's explanation of things is, is true, but it also paints himself in the best possible light. Uh, the long and the short of it is that the accusations against Paul were not what Festus had expected. And whatever he did understand about the situation, though, it was clear that this man, Jesus, was at the center of it. And the, the resurrection of the dead was obviously something that was very important to both sides. I love how he states it in verse 19. He says, trying to explain what the issue was. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Just interesting to see the, the Christian perspective through Festus's eyes. 
All of this sort of piques Agrippa's interest. I just wonder if he had sort of the spirit of his relative Herod Antipas, the one who liked to talk to John the Baptist. Just liked to have conversations, but never wanted to change. And Festus was more than happy to have Agrippa hear Paul's case, mostly in the hopes that, that Agrippa could help him come up with a charge against Paul that he could then send to Caesar. It's a very self-serving act. And so Paul is once again called upon to testify of his innocence and to testify of his faith. I love the scene as, as it's described in verses 23 through 27. It's very striking. I did a quick search to see if there were any paintings or uh, that would do it justice, but I just it didn't strike me that anyone has captured this scene. I'm not sure that you can. It's this scene of great pomp and power in contrast to a very humble man the inadequate image that came before my mind was this video that I've watched and I rewatched it this week of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, um, asking for funds, I think it was in 1969, before, uh, for asking for funds for PBS before this Senate subcommittee. And the, the senator who's questioning him is this surly guy, and by the end he just can't help but be putty in Mr. Rogers' hands. Um, it's a picture of this senator, a, a man of power who is totally arrested by the integrity and clarity of what initially appeared to be this powerless and, and weak man. Again, doesn't do it justice. Maybe a different picture comes into your mind of someone of great power and someone who looks weak but is actually very strong. Or maybe you can just with me try to imagine what it would be like. You can see Festus, you can see Agrippa and Bernike along with all these military tribunes, all the prominent men of Caesarea, and they all enter into this audience hall. They're dressed in their, their finest clothes. They have crowns on their heads and, and chains of gold around their necks and military medals on their chests. There are probably trumpets blaring, I imagine, or some sort of music announcing their entrance. These are the powerful ones, is what we're told. These are the people that we're to revere and respect and even worship. And they look the part, don't they? And once they had all entered and they'd all taken their seats, Festus commands Paul to be brought in. And Paul probably just had a prison tunic of some kind on. We later find out by his own words that he was chained. He was still in chains as he stood before them, so you can almost hear the chains rattling as he's walking in. The whole scene is, is meant to show the difference between Paul and those who he was called to stand before. And surely Festus knew this. Festus was surely trying to intimidate Paul, but I guess he didn't know who he was dealing with. Of course, we can sympathize with, with Paul. It's not hard to feel like him in this world, like someone who has little power. Little to attract the attention of others. Little wealth. Little influence in the world. We can look around at the powers that be and we can feel very, very small. I think as the church of Jesus Christ, we can wonder, is it really, maybe it's right, maybe it's true that the people who have influence in this world, that, that that's where power resides. What are the followers of Jesus? What's the church of Jesus Christ amongst all of the power in this world? Amongst all the, the rulers, all the political powers, all the, the wealth and the influencers? What is the church? 
But then we, the children of God, through faith in Jesus, remember that like the Lord says about David, the Lord doesn't look on our outward appearance, right? He looks on the heart. And Paul was in chains and he was dressed humbly, but I imagine that he was probably the only person, the only soul in the room who had the gospel ablaze in his heart. And so in one sense, he's the only royal person there. He's the only true son of a king. And when he's given a chance to speak, this man who is in chains before the powerful of the world, he shines forth as a true child of God. As we are going to hear Paul speak before the crowd, I think that God's word calls to us this morning that that no matter how small we might feel or insignificant or weak or powerless, that God's word says to us, cheerfully defend and proclaim the gospel in every situation to all people. This passage says a lot, but that's what I want to think about. Cheerfully defend and proclaim the gospel in every situation to all people. No matter the circumstance or situation that we find ourselves in, we can turn lemons into lemonade. (laughs) We can trust God in the dark and we can speak out of the darkness about the light of the gospel. In many ways, this passage is, is again showing us Paul's innocence of any wrongdoing. So, Festus begins this interview with nothing to send to Caesar, and that's the exact same way that it ends, with everyone affirming that Paul has done nothing wrong. And it again, this shows God's sovereign control as, as God is protecting and, and guiding Paul Paul's path. He's fulfilling that promise from Acts 23.11 that he's going to get him to Rome. But we are also, as we watch Paul, we're given a master class in joyfully proclaiming the good news. And it's that lesson that I want us to focus on, this call to cheerfully defend and proclaim the gospel in every situation to all people. Now, as we look at chapter 26, the the bulk of Paul's message to Agrippa is his testimony of conversion. Uh, As Paul has pointed out to, I'm sorry, as, as Paul, as Joel has pointed out to many of us in the past, Paul models really well how to share our testimony. Uh, He shows us how to speak about who we were before Christ, how God saved us by his grace, and how our lives have been changed now that Christ is reigning as Savior and King. And so you can follow that outline in part. Who, Who was Paul? When did Christ save him? And how did his life change in the years that followed? And in many ways, that teaches us how to share our own testimony. But this is also the the third time that Luke has recorded Paul's story of his conversion. It feels a little bit redundant, maybe. But in fact, there's some details, I think, in here that are a little bit different, that are emphasized as Paul is before Festus and Bernike, and especially before Agrippa. And so, um, let's let's read chapter 26. Agrippa is going to take the lead. Festus sort of hands things over to him, and then Paul is going to speak. So Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. 
Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing, but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernike, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, 
This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. What a wonderful scene that we have preserved for us. And again, I want us to think about how Paul teaches us to cheerfully defend and proclaim the gospel in every situation to all people. His opening words before Agrippa are not the ones that you might expect from a man who has been wrongfully in prison for over two years and is now being forced um, to stand before this crowd chained like some sort of show. We don't sense any bitterness, any fatigue, any anger, any shame in him. It's almost as if Paul is excited, like he wants to be in this place. And I think he is excited because I think he sees this unique opportunity to testify before this crowd, and especially before Agrippa, of the truth of the gospel. We've got to remember that Paul believes the gospel is for all people, small and great, as he says. And to have this audience before Agrippa is, is thrilling to him. And so as we think about, again, this call to cheerfully defend and proclaim the gospel in every situation to all people, we find in Paul some, some help and some encouragement for how to do just that as we go about our daily lives. Uh, we might not, I imagine probably not for most of us, we're not going to stand before governors and kings this week or maybe ever in our lives. But we are placed in situations often on a daily basis where we have the opportunity to defend and proclaim the Christian message, to announce the hope of forgiveness in Jesus. And Paul helps us to see how we can faithfully do just that. So I think I've got five points, but there could be so many more. I'll give you the first one. He shows us that we need to remind ourselves that sharing the gospel with anyone is a joyful privilege. Remind ourselves that sharing the gospel with anyone is a joyful privilege. In many ways, I think Paul's path was already set. This, this trial is not a real trial. It's not anything that's going to change Paul's future. He's going to Rome. He's appealed to Caesar. And so his concern is not so much about defending himself, but about using this opportunity before this audience to spread the good news about Jesus. Paul is not intimidated by Agrippa's rank or Agrippa's clothes. Like Paul, Agrippa put his pants on one leg at a time, right? No matter what they were made out of. And so whatever he looked like on the outside, he was a human being, Paul knew, with a living soul that would never die. And he was a sinner that was in need of forgiveness like everyone. And that's true of every person that we meet. Rich or poor, or as Paul says, small or great, everyone needs to know the message of forgiveness, the message of light. Paul saw the chance to see this man welcomed into God's kingdom as God's child. And the thought of proclaiming these words of life to Agrippa, but really to anyone, filled Paul with cheerfulness. How different it is for us sometimes, if we're honest, right? We think about sharing the gospel and we, fear, we, we feel fearful or ashamed or intimidated when we're given the chance to be a witness for Christ. We assume that people are too rich, too poor, too small, too great, and so we close our mouths. 
But what if we instead considered our interactions with all people as opportunities to announce the joy of God's kingdom? What if we sought to cheerfully proclaim the gospel? I think striving to think that way, it won't eliminate all fear or shame immediately, but I think it will help us to see that that this is not a task that we have to perform, but it's a privilege that we get to take part in. And maybe we'll be filled with a bit more joy at the prospect of being a witness of the gospel. I love how he says it there. He says, before you, I cheerfully make my defense. With chains and all, I'm excited because I get to talk about Jesus to you, Agrippa. He briefly defends his innocence. I think it's interesting he says in part that amongst all of his accusers, there were people who knew about his history and they could attest to his innocence and how he had lived his life. But then he moves quickly to defending the gospel. And he begins by showing where the gospel fits in salvation history and then also where the gospel fits in his own history. And so um, if our first lesson is to remind ourselves, let me make sure I say it the way I said it before, remind ourselves that sharing the gospel with anyone is a joyful privilege, uh, then the second encouragement or help would be uh, share God's story and our place in it. So share God's story and then share your place in God's story. I say that because in verse 6 he says that the, the message he is proclaiming is not something new, but rather it's the fulfillment of all that God's people had been searching and waiting for since the beginning. And then at the end of his defense, you'll notice that he starts talking um, in verse 22 that he's saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus are just what Moses and the prophets predicted would happen. And so the good news about Jesus is not something that that began in the first century, but it's the fulfillment of all that God has been doing since the creation of the world and even before that. And so as we share this, this message of the gospel, we should connect it back to the Old Testament. Connect the dots between the Old and the New Testament to help people see that this is not something that that came out of nowhere. It's not something that just arose in the the 21st century, but rather this is what God has been doing all along, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. We can show God's grand and sweeping plan of redemption and how Jesus' resurrection, His death, even His suffering, that while surprising They're not out of sync with the way that God promised He would save His people. In the midst of this grand narrative, Paul then shows how his own story intersects with God's grand story. He talks about his devotion to the Jewish faith that that led him all the way to persecuting followers of the way and to oppose Jesus Himself. There's some additional details, I think, in verses 9-11 through 11 that we don't have elsewhere. Look at verse 10. He's saying that he's opposing Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, all. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so we find that Paul's pursuit of Christians to Damascus, um, that that was not sort of a a one-time thing. Rather, he had chased Christians to other towns too. That's how zealous he was about snuffing out Christianity. 
And yet we know that as he was pursuing these Christians, God was pursuing him. And not just when he was blinded on the road to Damascus, but but pricking his conscience along the way. Paul says here a a phrase that Jesus said to him that we don't have in the other accounts of, of Paul's conversion. When Jesus cries out to him, he says, Saul, this is verse 14, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I remember reading that as a youth and trying to figure out what in the world that meant. Um, it's uh, Paul is, I think that Jesus is talking about these, these goads. They were spikes that were on the, the front of a cart that an ox would be pulling. And they kept the ox from kicking back and upsetting the cart. If the ox kicked, it, its its hind legs would go against these these long, almost spears, and so the ox would not kick and try to overturn the cart. He would go the way he was supposed to. But Jesus is pricking Paul's conscience, and Paul is kicking back against it. I think Jesus threw the truth of the gospel that was penetrating Paul's heart and mind, and then even you think about. Stephen, who was martyred before Paul's eyes, just before the road to Damascus. Imagine being there and watching Stephen die. And, and the way that he spoke of the truth of the Gospel. They said his, faith, his face shone like an angel. And, and Paul is there and sees that. And Paul's resistance was getting harder and harder. It hurt more and more to kick against his own conscience. The story of Paul's actual move from darkness to light that's recorded here doesn't include his meeting with Ananias. You remember he was blinded and then Ananias prayed for him. There's no mention of Ananias here. Um, The focus is actually on Paul's mission of announcing forgiveness and light to Jews and Gentiles alike. And then he tells about how he was obedient to that call and that being obedient to that call of Jesus is what was getting him in trouble with the Jews. As I look at Paul's story, I think we all have a a story like that, don't we? In in one way or another, our our story isn't about us getting knocked off a horse on the road to persecute some Christians. Uh, I don't think that's anyone's story. At least I haven't heard it yet. You have to tell me later if it is. Um, But we all have a story of God pursuing us and drawing us and how we kicked against that, how he, he pricked our conscience and convicted us of sin. And then eventually he got a hold of our hearts and saved us. And Paul shows us that that's a story we can share. It's a story that we can use to to help others to see what God is doing. It's a story we should set again within this larger story of, of redemption. We've all heard testimonies that emphasize the first half too much. They love to talk about who they were before Christ and then you get a little blip about how Jesus has saved them and maybe they changed a little bit. Or or some, you know, we don't really see, it feels as if they were just born Christians. We don't understand the drawing of, of, of Christ in their lives. But we can tell our stories in a way that actually makes Jesus the hero, that Jesus is the one that saves us. And we can share our testimonies in a way that helps others to see how the death and the resurrection of Jesus have a present and powerful effect in our lives and can change theirs as well.
But as we do that, I think a third thing that Paul shows us and that we've seen throughout the book of Acts is to expect opposition and resistance. As we share the gospel, as we proclaim the good news, as we defend our faith, we should expect opposition and resistance. The way Paul is speaking, it seems as if he knows that resistance is going to arise in the heart of Agrippa and Festus. He knows that they're not going to just buy this right off the bat. And he understands that. I mean, if anyone understood opposition to the gospel, it was Paul. He understood why Jews were pursuing him from city to city. Why? Because he had done the same thing. I was struck by that. He's pursuing, as I thought about people pursuing, uh, about Paul pursuing Christians, the same thing happens to him. You remember, even on the first missionary journey, they're chasing him down to stone him. He understood how easy it was to ignore the gospel. He understood the pain of resisting the calling of Jesus. He understood what the gospel was. That it's a call from darkness to light. I think my favorite verse in this passage is is verse 18. As Jesus is describing what Paul is supposed to do, he tells them that I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what we're called to do as we proclaim the gospel. That's a supernatural work to call people to open their blind eyes so that they can move from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. That's his mission. And he summarizes even the, the, the message of Jesus in verse 23. It says that Jesus must suffer and die by being the first to rise from the dead. He would proclaim what? Light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's his summary of the gospel, that Jesus would proclaim light. I love that picture. That's the picture of the gospel, that Jesus is the light of the world and he comes to shine into the darkness. But this is a a dark battle. This is not something simple. Brothers and sisters, when we share the gospel, we are entering into a cosmic battle for eternal souls of men and women. That's why we expect opposition. We should expect that we're going to be opposed. We should expect that it's not going to be easy all the time. And we should remember that the same was true for us. That we were in darkness and we were enslaved to Satan. And that it's only because of the grace of God and the kindness of some Christian or many Christians who spoke the truth to us. That's the only reason that we're following Jesus now. We would do well to remember the passage that Mark read earlier from Luke 7. To remember that we have been forgiven much. And so we will love much. Not only love God, but love others and be willing to share this message with them. So I think Paul expected the opposition. He knew they weren't just going to buy things hook, line, and sinker. I think we got to be realistic about that, right? As we talk to people, we get so discouraged so easily sometimes when we're sharing the gospel. We have very thin skin. Let's remember that we're calling people out of darkness into light from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Let's persevere even though there is opposition that faces us. 
And even when we experience opposition and resistance, I think Paul shows us forth that we should ask good questions and expect people to respond in faith. Ask good questions and expect people to respond in faith. As Paul's talking, Festus, who had sort of like handed over things to Agrippa. Agrippa is kind of in charge of this whole thing. But Festus just, he can't keep his mouth shut. And he interrupts Paul. And he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're, you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. Paul's out of his mind. Isn't that an accusation that's still thrown around about followers of Jesus? That we are out of our minds. You're crazy. You believe in the resurrection of the dead? If this were some sort of crazy belief system, that would make sense. But we can expect people to respond in faith because as Paul says, this isn't something that's crazy. What's he say? He says, I'm speaking, verse 25, true and rational words. Don't let people fool you into thinking that the gospel is irrational or crazy. These are true and rational words. The gospel makes sense. We can expect that people will respond in faith because the gospel is not crazy. Rather, when we speak the gospel, we're speaking true and rational words. And we don't hide in a corner. We're not, we're not doing something crazy that we're all meeting in a basement so that the authorities don't find out what we're doing. No, this makes sense. And it brings peace and love and grace into the world. Our message is not shameful. It's the, it's the truth of God. Well, Agrippa interrupts Paul, kind of throws him off. I think, you know, Paul is talking about how this is what that Moses and the prophets said that Christ must suffer and be, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I think Paul would have gone on to show where that was even in the Old Testament, but he doesn't get a chance. Things are going to unravel and he wants to make sure that he has the chance to press on Agrippa's conscience. And so he holds on to things for a minute here and, and he says, listen, we haven't done things in a corner. And then in verse 27, he addresses King Agrippa by name. First of all, if you just go back and realize, you know, Paul is said to be out of his mind, and the way he responds to Festus is so calm and and collected. Uh, another lesson maybe we could find in there is, you know, don't lose it when people say you're crazy. You know, just hold on to it. He he refers to him as most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true irrational words. But then he presses on King Agrippa in verse 27 with a really good question. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Questions when we're sharing the gospel are key. Our evangelism should not be a monologue. It shouldn't be a, a sermon. God can save people through sermons, but when we're sharing the gospel, it's a conversation. And it's a conversation that includes poignant, soul-searching questions like the one Paul asks. In fact, I'd like, as we move to our potluck time, to take some time to think about what's a good question that as we're talking with coworkers and friends and family and kids, and what's a good question we can ask to really help them understand how the gospel is intersecting with their own heart and life? but also recognize that the Spirit gives those questions in the moment. And Paul asks his question, and Agrippa responds with a question of his own. A question that 
Bible scholars throughout wish was audio so that we could know kind of what in the world did he, how did he say this? What was he trying to communicate? He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You think it can happen that fast, Paul? Uh, Paul gives his answer, but I also think there's two answers. There's the answer Paul gives, but there's also this answer. When when Festus says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul says, yeah, that's why I'm telling you all this. I really think, Agrippa, that you can and that you will believe. Paul expected to persuade him. He believed that the message of the gospel was reasonable and rational, and he believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we have that same attitude as we share the gospel? Do we expect people to hear it? In the midst of expecting opposition, it's a, it's a tightrope that we walk, but we believe that God can change people. But we also see Paul's heart here. Paul's heart is whether short or long. Agrippa, I wish that everyone that's here would become like I am, except for these chains. I wish everyone would become a Christian. Maybe that's the secret to Paul's defense. That he really wants everyone to know forgiveness. And as we search our own hearts, maybe that's where the disconnect happens for us sometimes. If we just get distracted, and we're pretty content walking about our own lives, and we lose sight that people are in darkness and in bondage to Satan and need forgiveness of sins and need to find a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith. And we just don't have that driving passion. So maybe we can pray that God would give us that. Here's the shocking part of this story. This beautiful defense of the gospel, and as far as we can tell, nobody repented. And nobody believed. And nobody in that room became a Christian. At least not Agrippa or Bernike or Festus. And so I think Paul teaches us a final lesson, which just briefly I'll say, uh, remember what faithfulness in evangelism is. That's the last encouragement I'd give you. Remember what faithfulness in evangelism is. In his book on personal evangelism, this is what Mark Dever writes. The Christian call to evangelism is a call not simply to persuade people to make decisions, but rather to proclaim to them the good news of salvation in Christ, to call them to repentance, and to give God the glory for regeneration and conversion. Hear this. We don't fail in our evangelism if we faithfully tell the gospel to someone who is not converted. We fail only if we don't faithfully tell the gospel at all. Can I say that again? We don't fail in our evangelism if we faithfully tell the gospel to someone who is not converted. We, we fail only if we don't faithfully tell the gospel at all. Evangelism itself isn't converting people. It's telling them that they need to be converted and telling them how they can be. Was Paul a failure at evangelism in this moment? No. And neither are you if you share the gospel a million times and no one ever comes to faith.
we are called to be faithful, to proclaim the gospel, to call people to repentance, to press on their conscience. But for someone to move from darkness to light, for someone to move from the the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, that's a miracle only God can do. And yet, let's not forget how He has chosen to do it. How will they hear unless someone tells them? That's the call that we have. When you talk about evangelism, fear is one of the first things that comes to our minds often. But maybe we can look at Paul and instead of being scared, we could be filled with joy. We could be filled with this idea that we get to cheerfully defend and proclaim the gospel in every situation of our lives and to all people. That it's not crazy. These are true and rational words. That people can be converted. And that we are faithful simply in telling the story of God's plan of redemption and even telling our own story of how God has changed us. Talking about evangelism is talk is like talking about prayer. We all have room to grow no matter where we're at. And so let's take a moment of silence as we close our service and maybe ask the Lord to um, perk our own hearts in this area and fill us with a supernatural joy at the thought of sharing the gospel with others.